This is Guns and Butter. Voluntarily, that's the whole point. You know, always remember in your Dracula movies, uh, Dracula doesn't pull anybody through the door of his castles. He says, "Welcome, come in by your own consent." And it's our consent to these things which is so extraordinary and unprecedented in terms of looking at the occult imperium over the ages. Because,、uh, for example, in medieval times, people had to be compelled; they had to be、um, uh, driven into、uh, coerced. Uh, format of subjugation; otherwise, they would resist it. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Hoffman. Today's show: The Twilight Language Zone. Michael Hoffman is an independent scholar, a New York native, and former reporter for the New York Bureau of the Associated Press. He studied under Fayez Abu-Jabir at the State University of New York at Oswego. He is the author of ten books, including *Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare*, published in April 2001, *The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome*, and *Usury in Christendom*. The mortal sin that was and now is not. His most recent book is *Twilight Language*, the subject of today's interview. Michael Hoffman, welcome back. Thank you, Bonnie. It's good to be here. Wonderful to have the chance to talk to you again. I've been reading with interest your new book. Twilight Language, a sequel to your seminal book *Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare*. I'd like to begin with a discussion of Freemasonry. What is Freemasonry? Freemasonry is paradoxically a continuation of an occult imperium that actually started in the Church of Rome, which、uh, tends to short circuit some people's preconceived ideas about. Masonry being the implacable foe of the Church of Rome and the papacy and so forth. However, I think that that enmity is about the same as Ford versus GM or Volkswagen、uh, versus Mercedes Benz. In other words, they have a common goal and common、uh, shared objectives, but they are rivals to see who can dominate in the field of the occult and of control over humanity. So.、Um, So in my book, *The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome*, I go into those details. But what I will say is that out of the、um, Hermetic, Neoplatonic Kabbalism of the uh, late fifteenth、uh, century, and then throughout the sixteenth century in the Catholic Church,、uh, you had the rise of this occult imperium. It actually began at the Platonic Academy in Florence. Uh, in the mid 15th century, and the patrons of that were the notorious Medici. And then、um, from that, there was a belt of transmission between, surprisingly enough, the Protestant Reformation and this、uh, newly occult Catholic Church. Although some would argue the Church was、uh, was occult much、uh, further back than that, and, and I would.、Um, Argue that that's not true. That basically, before the Renaissance, it, it was indeed a Christian church. So,、um, one belt of transmission is Henry VIII seeking a justification for his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and he actually went to occult sources in the Vatican, meaning the Catholic Church,、uh, 
for insight into what the Babylonian Talmud would say, because the exegetes and scholars of the Church of Rome were far advanced in that study compared with what was going on in Tudor England. And then from there you had uh, the Cambridge Apostles, who were Neoplatonic, the rise of Rosicrucianism, uh, centered in uh, England and Europe, although beginning more in the German lands. And out of Rosicrucianism, officially in the 18th century arose Freemasonry. I say officially because it had been part of an occult gnosis um, far longer than that with a, a much deeper and more profound patrimony. But that's when it uh, emerged into the exoteric realm. And then you had the lodges uh, in Europe Great Britain, and then eventually in America, although I do think we have to distinguish between the American Masonic experience of the Founding Fathers and what transpired in Europe and Great Britain. There is a significant difference there. But as well, far as the great threat of Masonry as seen by, for example, the early American Republic, and I'm talking about uh, early 19th century America, which offered the strongest resistance, organized resistance to Freemasonry in the history of the West, as far as I can tell. And that was uh, that it was a secret society which gave advantages to its members and also was at risk of being involved in suborning jurors, uh, corrupting judges, and creating an invisible empire, which, by the way, is what the Masonic Ku Klux Klan uh, came to be known as, and yes, the Klan uh, was uh, Masonic. And so this invisible empire set up creates a second tier of government, uh, that cryptocracy or deep state, and this is what so many of us oppose. We know that, that there is this uh, secret uh, level of control over our government, and uh, there's a great deal of principled opposition to that, both in conservative and, and leftist circles. And uh, however, some people don't really recognize that that's the root of the secret society notion, which was Freemasonry. And lastly, before I turn it back over to you, Freemasonry was a secrets keeping order, but it's mostly accomplished its goals. And so that it's not as necessary now, it's still needed where assassinations need to be covered up in courtrooms where they need to be corrupted. But the overall uh, Weltanschauung or Gestalt of the uh, Freemasons has been more or less eclipsed by accomplishing their objectives in the alchemical degeneration and dissolution, salve et coagula, of the uh, people of the West in terms of their bestialization and subhumanity as we progress along the lines of what was forecast to be a uh, script or master plan uh, for the enslavement of humanity. And so we are now in an entirely new and terminal phase of the hermetic alchemical uh, plan, which is what I call and what my mentor James Shelby Downard uh, pioneered is the revelation of the method where it's no longer necessary uh, to keep many of the secrets because we're so degenerate that in the presence of the secrets, uh, we become voyeurs spectating in the presence of spectacular criminal prodigies. And therefore, Masonry is no longer at the center of the civic society of America as it was, say, even 70 years ago, 60 years ago, where the master Mason in town would typically be the leading uh, physician or the leading lawyer 
and now he could be a janitor, uh, which is fine. I actually have a higher opinion of janitors than I do of lawyers, but um, nevertheless, there has been an eclipse, and the reason for that is they've accomplished their goals, and, and that's where we are today. And Mr. Downard and I both saw Masonic symbolism in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy at the Dealey Plaza, which is the historic Masonic center of Dallas. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. That's more in secret societies and psychological warfare than it is in twilight language, but I'm happy to take it wherever you want. Now, the Freemasons have been described as the master builders. What were they trying to construct, and was it competing with the natural world for supremacy? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, that's really where we are now today with the GMOs and uh, the kind of alchemical processing that we're looking at. I mean, that's that's really the core of uh, the occult imperium, the uh, competition between the natural world and the reign or supremacy of human brain power over it, which in spite of all the propaganda that's centered around, I mean, in academia and media, the things that we're talking about, this uh, occult dimension is always presented as enlightenment and as an escape from the prejudices and superstitions of the past. And that's been a very powerful propagation of precisely the story uh, that occult groups like the Ordo Templi Orientis, known as the OTO for short, uh, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, which is the most powerful in the world, and other organizations like that want to be presented to the public. And yet, uh, deeper digging uh, reveals that this is really the suzerainty of human brain power. Uh, the Rosicrucian alchemical texts, which appeared in the 17th century, proclaimed this new age of magic and Kabbalah, anticipating and laying the groundwork for the suzerainty of human brain power over nature. And it's this retrograde philosophy, which is presented in academia as a noble enlightenment. And that's what's really being built. Uh, I mean, the GMOs, and, and not only that, also what we see in terms of the human the crossover between human beings and animals, uh, and some of that in my research for um, the Twilight Language books, especially on the section on the Rosicrucians and alchemy from about page 249 uh, forward, we see that uh, these chimeras are appearing. Uh, and, and so we're in this age of revelation. I believe uh, it's the 21 Blackjack era um, and that's what I bring up and you and I discussed prior, I think in 2019, in secret societies and psychological warfare. And, um, you know, there's comparatively little dissembling is required to propagate this type of acceptance of laboratory conceived monsters, whether it's genetically modified food or if it's actually uh, the, uh, this animal human crossover. And I'll give you a quote from uh, Nathaniel Rich. Uh, he's writing in the Wall Street Journal of May 1st, 2021, and he candidly explains the utopian blandishments which are entailed within the process by which this acceptance of the Frankenstein horrors will be achieved, quote, only after the public has warmed to the tools of synthetic biology and land regeneration, enticed by cruelty-free meat, and flood resilient coastlines and COVID immunity, will we be prepared to undertake uncomfortable conversations over hybrid species 
and bespoke fetuses. And, and quote, so concerning this alchemy, he writes, in recent scientific milestones, you can make out the sharpening contours of our unnatural future. Researchers in La Jolla, California and Kunming, China, announced that they had successfully implanted human cells into MAC, M-A-C-A-Q-U-E, MAC monkey embryos. The experiment suggested it would soon be possible to engineer a novel hybrid species, a human monkey chimera. Scientists have created transgenic species for decades. We've also seen humanized pigs, cows, and rats, and the first COVID vaccines available in the U.S. were initially tested on mice implanted with human genes. And he concludes by stating the word monster comes from the Latin word monere, to warn, remind, a root shared by premonition. The future now emerging is one of unabashed, targeted interference in natural processes through the manipulation of genetic codes, end quote. Unabashed, targeted interference in natural processes. It's not abashed because they don't need to hide it. Too many of our people are so burned out and demoralized by their uh, serving as percipients inside our spectacular culture. Guy Debord first uh, uh, warned us about that in the 1960s in his great book, The Society of the Spectacle. And much of conspiracy theory is voyeurism. Uh, that's the stage that we're in now. Much of the concern about these things is just grist for our own being thrilled by it. And I think it's interesting that he does point out the process here that um, only after the public has been warmed to the tools of synthetic biology and land regeneration, cruelty-free meat. So they put these noble causes in front of us, and that's the, uh, the um, screen behind which they do these other things. But in the end, he's even saying that the targeted interference in natural processes through the manipulation of genetic codes, what he calls the monster, will be unabashed. So that's the revelation of the method. And um, I know that's a long circuitous route between Freemasonry, the great builders and what they're trying to accomplish, but that's really the essence of it. And that's where I think that all people of goodwill, whether on the right, left or independent, need to be warned because of how this is being sold to us as a brave new world, as Aldous Huxley warned us about, and a brave new world that's going to solve a lot of the difficulties. Actually, it's going to compound and exacerbate them. I'm speaking with independent scholar, author, and researcher, Michael Hoffman. Today's show, The Twilight Language Zone. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I just wanted to ask you one more question about Freemasonry. Are the Jesuits part of Freemasonry? And if so, what role do they play? Yeah, the Jesuits, I'm glad you asked me about that. It's kind of a, a red herring in the conspiracy theory movement because there has always been a strong animus against the Jesuits coming from the root of uh, the Protestant Reformation in Great Britain because they were the lead missionaries into the uh, profoundly oppressed and exploited Catholic people who were basically living as outlaws uh, beginning in the uh, reign of the boy king Edward VI, and then after the death of uh, Queen Mary Tudor, so-called Bloody Mary, then comes the reign of who I call Bloody Elizabeth, uh, or Bad Queen Bess, Elizabeth I, and that's where uh, the real machinery and mechanics of the uh, persecution of Catholics began. 
and Jesuit priests at the risks of their at the risk of their lives uh, entered as outlaws into uh, Great Britain and offered mass in many of the priest holes. There's a James Bond movie. I forget the name of which one it is. He's in Scotland and uh, he's actually hiding out in his ancestral home. And uh, he and the head of uh, MI6 are taking shelter in uh, a priest hole in a, in a hidden area where the priests were hidden by the various aristocrats who had the money and the wherewithal to conceal them. So we have to take the, um, the blanket condemnation of the Jesuits cum grano salus with a grain of salt because of this initial uh, Protestant animus in this fratricidal Protestant Catholic warfare that continues to grind on, and this is an echo of it. However, there are legitimate concerns about the Jesuits for many different reasons. I did a study of Edmund Campion, uh, the great Jesuit poet who uh, Queen Elizabeth had been very fond of as long as she thought that he was going to be neutral in terms of this uh, religious confessional contest. And uh, when he came over to offer mass to the Catholics, he was caught and she had him tortured to death. And Campion was among the most blameless figures in this chess game uh, warfare between Catholics and Protestants. And there was so much more behind this warfare than just uh, what has been presented to us in the mainstream history books. Uh, but uh, I believe that actually some Jesuits conspired to have uh, a Campion uh, killed. And so that adds to uh, some of the darkness of the Jesuit order. But principally, the darkness comes from the papal olatry, which they injected into the Catholic Church itself. People don't realize that the doctrine of infallibility and other uh, and the Inquisition and things like that uh, didn't exist in the early Middle Ages, which means around 1000 or 1100 AD, which means for 1100 years of the existence of the Catholic Church, uh, papal infallibility and uh, the Inquisition weren't there. And then it became a devolutionary cycle. Well, anyway, uh, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, came up with this idea that in fact, doctrine and dogma, much more than an idea, that if the Pope says something is white when it's black, then it's white. In other words, blind obedience to the Pope. And that rightly frightened Protestants, and it also frightened Catholics. And perhaps the most um, formidable opponent of the Jesuits comes from inside the Catholic Church itself, and that would be uh, the uh, renowned mathematician Blaise Pascal, whose sister was a, uh, uh, an important intellectual in the Jansenist movement. And I recommend his letters, which have not been uh, reprinted in any notable edition uh, concerning the Jesuits. But as far as them being at the very heart of the conspiracy, what I would say is they're at the heart of this occult Renaissance Church of Rome, which is part of the conspiracy, but I don't see them at the center of much of the evil that's been done in the world. I see them more as an auxiliary or ancillary one. And I warn people who fall into the rigid uh, Protestant hatred of Catholicism in general and the Jesuits in particular, in terms of uh, some of the extreme fallacies and specious arguments that are being presented there. Yes, the Jesuits are a significant problem because of its founders' papal olatry and some of its actions. Also, I would just add parenthetically that Pius V made the huge mistake 
or was it a mistake? Was it intentional uh, to label Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, as an excommunicate that any Catholic could assassinate uh, without incurring any sin or crime? And that, as a, as a result of that, uh, horrible uh, declaration, horrible on the basis that it rendered every Catholic unpatriotic and a potential subversive and was a gift to Sir Francis Walsingham, who uh, was the architect of the inaugural Secret Service, which has become uh, so effective and so um, famous or infamous in our time, uh, the 007 uh, Her Majesty's, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And so Walsingham, who was a principal uh, hunter of Catholics, now he had this reward coming into his hands that every Catholic would be a subversive. And the Jesuits being loyal to the Pope thereby were involved to a certain extent in various conspiracies to assassinate Elizabeth. Now, I'd like to add here, there were plenty of Protestant uh, conspiracies to assassinate Catholic leaders, and pretty much the whole of the Catholic leadership of Great Britain had either been imprisoned or murdered. So we have to keep all of this in mind and not get drawn into the prejudices of either side here when we examine this history. Why do you refer to the ruling cabal as a cryptocracy. That comes from Walter Bauer in his wonderful book, Operation Mind Control. And he coined that term as being, you know, we have aristocracy ruled by royalty. Uh, we have plutocracy ruled by money. And then we have uh, the cryptocracy ruled by secrets keeping. And so I'm glad you brought that up because people could say, well, that's kind of uh, uh, paradoxical in that you're saying we're in the revelation of the method. We're in the revelation of the method, but we have to be careful about being precise about details rather than just um, grabbing onto a shibboleth and then making that um, our trademark. So that certainly um, plenty of secrets are still being kept, but as an epistemology, more and more are being revealed as well. And certainly in the various so-called lone nut uh, serial killings and occult killings, which I review in my book, Twilight Language, such as Virginia Tech from 2007, the DC Sniper in 2002, the El Paso Walmart uh, shootings in 2019, the 2012 Batman Theater uh, Massacre in Colorado, uh, the Parkland School in Florida Massacre 2018, and of course, perhaps the most spectacular one of recent memory, uh, the Route 91 Harvest uh, in uh, Las Vegas in 2017. Uh, certainly those secrets are fairly tightly kept in terms of uh, a cabal inside the United States government and within the cryptocracy being responsible for much of that mayhem. Uh, so that would be my understanding of the cryptocracy as it's at work today. What does it mean to be alchemically processed by the cryptocracy? How can we understand this? Alchemy is a transformative process, so it means that we are changed. What does it mean to be processed and how is the processing of humanity undertaken? I can give you an example from current affairs. It'll probably age this show as people listen to it months or years from now. But um, there is an alchemical process in the revelation of the method in the conservative reaction to Netflix's Dave Chappelle comedy show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the controversy about that that's ongoing now. Chappelle has done a number of 
so-called comedy shows. I don't see anything funny in them, but uh, on Netflix. And the current one is uh, being celebrated by conservatives. And so here, I'd like to use this, if you don't mind, as a test book example, uh, as an answer to what you've raised. Degenerative occult programming uh, in terms of alchemy, consists in the devolutionary process of solve et coagula, which means to uh, break down and build up, uh, whereby high standards of ethics, civility, and deportment are incrementally eroded. So humans become less human, and the resulting decay becomes the new normal, and that's that's where we are. And so on Netflix, you've got this... Uh, did you see the program? Uh, no, I didn't, but I think I know what you're referring to. Okay, yeah. He, um, you know, his thing was supposedly to defend against the charge that he's transphobic, but he did it in an insulting manner. And uh, my concern is with the pornographic patter and misogyny which accompanied uh, his uh, defense, for example, of J.K. Rowling's free speech rights. But uh, his pornographic patter and his misogyny are not an issue for conservatives. They no longer shock. And his show has been applauded by, in my opinion, heavily processed, burned out conservatives like Peggy Noonan of the Wall Street Journal and Rupert Murdoch's New York Post newspaper, Town Hall's Matt Vespa and others on the right. And uh, and so conservatives are praising him because he's after the trans people. And that's the bait. And the conservatives have taken it while exhibiting a depraved indifference to the pornography in Chappelle's very same October Netflix uh, comedy show. Uh, you know, the F-U-C-K word is the lingua franca of his discourse, and I guess that's most people don't find that objectionable anymore. I think that's unfortunate. Um, he has a nauseatingly filthy story about his youthful uh, oral sexual encounter with a pedophile preacher, and references to nearly all women as bitches, and this is supposed to be the source of mirth and plaudits. And so, you know, 20 years ago, no conservative in their right mind uh, would offer accolades for such a foul discourse. It would have been, or, or monologue, it would have been mind-boggling to congratulate the merchant who peddles this degeneracy. Yet in 2021, the show is celebrated on the right. Or if it's not extolled, it's greeted with the shoulder-shrugging apathy of uh, frazzled and bestialized inhabitants of what I call the twilight language zone. And witnessing this psychological operation is witnessing history from the ground floor of the alchemical laboratory where this process is formulated before our very eyes. It's not hidden. No Masonic handshake or password is required to enter uh, the, I mean, you have to have the seven or eight bucks that Netflix charges, but you know we're far beyond the era of occult secrets keeping. The programming is revealed in public to tens of millions of people who have access to Netflix, and Americans succumb to this operation without caring about how far they're debasing their humanity and what is an unmistakable process of occult initiation. And you know, you mentioned alchemy being, you know, sort of like implying that it's like a neutral, uh, a neutral force for our uh, transformative improvement. If that's true, why does that have to be in an occult framework? I mean, why can't we progress in our lives without the necessity of secrets? Gnosticism, which is at the root of a lot of this, involved a secret initiation while calling itself Christian. Yet Jesus said, uh, quote, I spoke nothing in secret. 
He did speak in parables because sometimes the words of truth are paradoxical, but those parables were spoken in public. Whereas Gnosticism came along, and St. Irenaeus is the great nemesis of Gnosticism, and I, I recommend his three-volume uh, polemic concerning it. But Gnosticism comes along and says, uh, like um, later on, you had the uh, secret societies in France in the Provençal region, the Albigensians, which are also uh, celebrated by people who are seeking human liberation, erroneously so, I think. And they created this two-tier of humanity, one that's worthy of the secrets, and the other that is not, and actually needs to be tricked into enlightenment. And things like that really just rub me wrong. And I think that they rubbed the uh, early Americans wrong with the genius of the early American Republic for all of its flaws was the desire to have an open society and free of these, um, these, these secret organizations that took advantage of people. And alchemy absolutely did that. The initial uh, alchemical treatises, which were circulated, the Fama Fraternitas and, and the others like that, were circulated in the 17th century by a secret organization. And people could say, well, they had to do that so they weren't persecuted. Yeah, okay, that's the alibi. But actually, they were operating in Protestant countries where these things, even though these come from a Catholic root, it's very complex, but they were operating in Protestant bases of support where the Inquisition didn't operate and the Pope couldn't get to them any more than he could get to Luther. And so the idea that they had to remain secret, I, I see that as a, a flimsy pretext for this two-tier operation of initiation. And there's nothing more alchemical or Kabbalistic than just what we were talking about previously in terms of this transhumanism. Uh, and that's not a reference to the uh, transsexual movement. It's a reference to uh, putting human genes inside animals. And also the genetic modification. Uh, both of those are consonant with the alchemical uh, motives and objectives. And again, uh, that's in my book, Twilight Language. I'm speaking with independent scholar, author, and researcher Michael Hoffman. Today's show, The Twilight Language Zone. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that, quote, the majority of Americans have been processed as initiates. They are masons on site, i.e., members of the secret society without knowing it. If we have all been initiated, how does this initiation manifest within us? Well, it manifests in terms of sitting in front of these spectacular occult rites and not being... So if you're a Freemason and you're in the inner sanctum there and you're seeing somebody stripped of their clothing and put into a coffin uh, for a period of time and then resurrected from it, there's no shock there. You've been initiated into the process yourself, so you're enjoying the spectacle. And I would say that that's pretty much the same phenomenon at work in American society today, where we see these uh, blatantly occult uh, killings, for example, the Batman uh, killings there in Colorado, accompanied by all kinds of occult symbolism. Of course, the Kennedy assassination also from 1963 was accompanied by that symbolism. Or for that matter, uh, Madonna's uh, Super Bowl show, which up to that time, I think was what, 2012? Don't quote me on that specifically, but somewhere in that 
era was the most watched. It was more watched than the football game itself. And it was a flagrant ceremony that was uh, redolent of ancient Egypt. Now, again, people can say, I'm, I'm reading too much into this and taking it too seriously. It's just all in fun and everything else. Well, you know, if there was a, a neo-Nazi swastika involved in there, we would recognize that uh, maybe this isn't all in fun. Maybe there's a sinister subtext here. And I think that we should get beyond our own hobby horses and be able to put on our lenses of perception and be a little bit more pessimistic and skeptical when symbolism is implanted in what are alleged to be just good old ordinary civic American activities and enterprises. However, I would argue that a great deal of that Mayberry type of innocence is long gone, and I think the American people reflect that in their own deportment and civility, language, and uh, loss of morality and ethics. And so, yes, like initiates, we sit in front of these things and um, you notice that in the Harvest, uh, Route 91 Harvest Massacre of the country and Western fans in Las Vegas, that was done in front of the props and idols of ancient Egypt at one of the casinos that imitates that and also has a light coming out of the uh, top of its pyramid, which is the brightest light on Earth and can be seen from space. And uh, I don't think any of this is a coincidence, and I don't believe that Paddock uh, was the killer. I believe that he was a patsy who was executed, and then it was made to look like uh, he committed those crimes. But that has uh, ritual occult all over it, and the initiated American people sit in front of it, and they watch it, and they take it in, and okay, on to the next thrill. We've also had certain revelatory uh, movies about the occult, uh, about the Jack the Ripper uh, killings starring Johnny Depp, about um, the secret society initiation process. Robert De Niro was in that. Uh, these are fairly graphic, and I would say 80 to 90% accurate in terms of what's actually going on, and that's about as much a peek inside the lodge as you could possibly get. Actually, it's more than a peek. The door is pretty much thrown wide open. What do we do with the information? I would suggest virtually nothing. We just proceed on down the road that much more heavily initiated and processed. And that's the reason why there is this eerie indifference that most of us who are activists uh, for social change and for uh, reform of the criminal politics that is extant in America have noticed much to our frustration. And I think that's deliberate. The father of a friend of mine was very high up in the CIA. This is going back to the 1960s. At that time, he told my friend that the world was ruled by secret societies. Does this claim seem credible to you? <laughs> uh, I guess I'm prejudiced when it comes to a question like that. I I would answer with one word, yes. <laughs> you write about the nature of reality, the wonders of creation and the natural world, as opposed to what you refer to as, quote, a degraded burlesque of communication, what you term twilight language. How is it that human degradation is brought about through the process of communication, be it in the form of language, pictures, news media, or ideas? Well, uh, the great psychologist Dr. Carl Gustav Jung uh, brought to our attention the notion of archetypes. 
that we bear in our uh, genetic schematics, uh, this memory of the certain trigger words, trigger images, which we have picked up historically over time and in a process he doesn't really explain in terms of physiology or morphology how it came about. But it seems to me, uh, experientially and empirically, we can confirm a, a great deal about that, at least insofar as the mania or obsession of secret societies have for certain words in terms of using them to imprint us. And then if you look up the etymology of that word, you find that it has a rather macabre origin. And this may be uh, fitting into the uh, archetype, in this case, linguistic, of, uh, of what uh, Dr. Jung talked about. And of course, there's a whole scientific discipline of neuro-linguistic programming. So this is by no means uh, far-fetched. And I would say that much of the uh, top hierarchy or echelon of the advertisers uh, the advertising agencies are also well familiar with the science and art of Twilight language. And when you're paying several million dollars for a uh, 60-second Super Bowl advertisement, you can be sure that some of the prodigious talents in this realm have been employed to uh, do just that. And the idea that they limit themselves simply to the uh, commercial application of this knowledge, I think, is very naive. And so... Uh, one of these uh, words I regard to be wicker, W-I-C-K-E-R, the dictionary definition of one of them, there's a number of them, is the bending of reality. And a lot of people recall the Wicker Man uh, movie uh, with Christopher Lee, where on an island, uh, a gigantic effigy of a human made out of wicker is burned as a part of human sacrifice. And in the Black Rock Desert, we have the Burning Man right in Nevada, where a colleague of mine, Jim Keith, suffered a uh, fatal injury, which I regard as uh, somewhat mysterious, and, uh, and died uh, very soon afterward. And then in The Silence of the Lambs, uh, the serial killer book, uh, Wicker comes up, and also a case that I investigated when I was a uh, reporter for the mainstream media, uh, The Son of Sam. And by the way, this summer on Netflix, a documentary entitled The Sons, plural, The Sons of Sam debuted. And uh, parts one and part two, I recommend part three and part four sort of go off into uh, areas that I think are too speculative. But uh, one and two has done a service to... Um, trying to bring some of these killers to justice, which is a big issue for me that no one's ever been prosecuted, imprisoned, brought to justice for these various occult crimes. And that just emboldens the occult and aids their recruiting. But to return to this, uh, the son of Sam, who was not, I mean, David Berkowitz was one of the shooters and John Wheatcar was another one. Uh, and Michael Carr was also implicated. And then there was a satanic society behind it. Now, unfortunately, Maury Terry, who was one of the investigators I worked with, got into the Halloween aspect of that satanic society. Sometimes there actually is one, and sometimes it's a play on all the um, juvenile uh, fears that can be invoked by a lot of hype about Satanism. You have to be careful between the two. Let's go back to the McMartin child uh, molestation case in California that uh, claimed satanic molestations. I mean, they do exist. Jimmy Savile in Great Britain was at the head of a uh, satanic child molestation uh, cabal 
that involved uh, the British aristocracy and Margaret Thatcher. So it's there, but also it can be uh, exploited and used to divert our attention. Misdirection is a key element here in terms of um, uh, obstructing investigation. And so uh, the actual author of the uh, letter to Jimmy Breslin signed himself Wicked King Wicker, the rapist and suffocator of young girls. No girls were raped or suffocated as part of the Son of Sam killings. There's no investigator of any level of credibility uh, that has asserted that. But in the double initial murders in Rochester, New York, which I also investigated and where Michael Carr had been uh, based for a time, uh, girls were raped and murdered there in that, that double initial series. And so why does he sign himself Wicked King Wicker? The media never followed up on it. The dullness of the media, you know, and I used to be a member of it, but the vast majority of them I just find to be so disappointing. And so, um, so is twilight language separate from human intervention? In other words, what's the supernatural basis to this? And I think it's a worthy question, but in order to answer that or to propose an answer, we'd have to propose another answer. How does synchronicity arise and order itself? Because so many synchronicities seem to attend these occult murders and, uh, and these other sinister events. And uh, are they, are they, manipulated by an extra human agency? If not, what role does human agency play? And, you know, I'm asking as many questions as I'm proposing so-called answers, because as a Fortean, someone who is enamored of the epistemology of Charles H. Fort, F-O-R-T, uh, that's really our job is to, is to ask as many questions and certainly never to claim that we're proposing a, a solution, um, only a tentative solution. So is there a kind of uh, like Tesla, Nikola Tesla-like tower or antenna that's not necessarily purely physical that attracts and orders synchronicity? And I would ask if something like that exists, is it aimed like a weapon or a means of engineering humanity? And, and if so, how does it operate and who is the operator? But I'm also aware of just the majesty of being alive. It's part of the wonder, I think. It isn't always in the realm of darkness or the sinister. I think that synchronicity in general is part of the wonder of this beautiful uh, universe that we inhabit. Then I was out today looking at my sugar maple tree and all the colors changing on it. And synchronicity, I think, is part of that wonder. And we may never plumb the depths of it or have a comprehension of it. In fact, I think sometimes that the striving after comprehending everything and the egoistic illusion that we actually can do that is at the heart of some of the um, issues that we're confronting here. But yes, I think that synchronicity is real. And most people that you talk to, uh, they all have uh, fairly numerous synchronicity stories, but they usually don't use uh, the nomenclature that we're employing here. They call it coincidence. I'm speaking with independent scholar, author, and researcher, Michael Hoffman. Today's show, The Twilight Language Zone. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I would just say, we're moving now from virtual reality when you talked about people being debased by this. We're moving from virtual reality, which is something the cryptocracy finds is not as useful as a descriptor for the kind of next stage of processing that they're taking us into. And so what we're seeing is the development of uh, virtual reality lingo, 
being replaced by more neutral and science-sounding words, and chief among them now that's being promoted in the media is metaverse. And uh, that offers uh, probably uh, the most powerful processing and devolution of humanity that I have seen of late. Right. Well, Michael, would you like to go ahead then and uh, discuss the change from virtual reality into the metaverse? Yes, I would. Thank you for the opportunity. So in the October 18th, 2021 issue of the Wall Street Journal is one of these uh, articles that is announcing the new dawn, all with optimism. There are no caveats here whatsoever. This is so typical of the starstruck uh, journalists and more importantly, the editors who commissioned them uh, to do these things. So it's titled Tech Visionaries See Brave New Metaverse. You know, wow, what an attractive headline, you know. We all want to be visionaries and let's face it, most of us have been seduced to one degree or another by our personal computers and and all the uh, doors that have opened to us on the internet. So this sounds really good. And so uh, I'll quote from it. The metaverse is going to be the biggest revolution in computing platforms the world has seen. Bigger than the mobile revolution, bigger than the web revolution, says Mark Witten, W-H-I-T-T-E-N, whose title is Senior Vice President and General Manager of CREATE at San Francisco-based Unity Software Incorporated. Unity is building tools and services to enable people to create metaverse content. Programming tools simple enough to allow anyone to create their own virtual realms and experiences, not just skilled developers. So what you have is, is the sales pitch, which is the same way the internet was sales uh, pitched to us. Uh, that's how we got ourselves wired to the data hive. Is that a good thing? Um, I would say more and more the jury is returning a verdict of probably not, except for those very uh, special people who are able uh, to use it in such a way that it's extremely limited and uh, purpose-driven rather than just the so-called surfing. So, so this is how it's presented. Uh, we're going to take command well, really, we're going to compete against uh, Zuckerberg at Facebook and Bezos at, at Amazon and uh, Google. You know, we're really, you and I, uh, Bonnie and Michael, are going, we're going to get these tools in our hand. Well, I suppose, you know, the listener might say, all those guys started out as nothings, and maybe you could do the same. But they didn't start out in an era of monopolization of the Internet. The Internet was pretty much wide open when they were doing this. It certainly isn't the case today. So that's the sales pitch, but let's continue here. In addition to being the next generation of the internet, says um, the Wall Street Journal, the metaverse is also going to be the next chapter for us as a company, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said during a July earnings call with analysts. In the coming years, I expect people will transition from seeing us primarily as a social media company to seeing us as a metaverse company. And quote, wow, I mean, that's really a statement. The Facebook that we know now won't even exist. It's going to be entirely absorbed into this metaverse about which we know almost nothing. But it seems like that Mark Zuckerberg knows a great deal about it, which makes me think perhaps some of the architecture of this metaverse has already been created, even if it hasn't been uh, showcased and presented. Back to quoting from the Wall Street Journal, tech executives say specialized glasses, similar to but less bulky and more comfortable than the virtual reality headsets, will allow for greater immersion. And um, 
so let's see, executives from tech companies helping to create the metaverse say it will be vast. And here comes the revelation of the method thing. They're not holding back on this at all, but return to the quote. It will be vast with replicas of places in the real world, past, present, and future, all rendered in realistic looking 3D. It will be capable of supporting an infinite number of users simultaneously without the lag time that often frustrates players of multiplayer video games. Any number of students from anywhere in the world might meet up for a class trip to ancient Rome, says, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Vidia executive, N-V-I-D-I-A, executive Richard Karras, who is helping oversee a metaverse infrastructure project called Omniverse that will allow developers around the world to collaborate in real time to build metaverse content creation software. The students could peer inside every nook and cranny of the Colosseum in Rome with a virtual gladiator powered by artificial intelligence on hand to answer questions, end quote. Oh, well, who is going to be the historian who programs that virtual reality uh, gladiator and answer the questions? Because whoever it will be, he will pretty much be imprinting these kids for the rest of their lives and uh, experiencing the hallucination that they've actually spoken to a Roman gladiator and this will be the knowledge that's fixed in their brain. So you can imagine the potential for abuse here if one ideology or the other from the left or the right or uh, one totalitarian government or predatory capitalist uh, government got in there and programmed that gladiator or uh, the slave plantations or whatever historical issue which is now a great contention and this is all presented as it's going to be a neutral experience. And it may be too late by the time people uh, see the impact on, on the young, and we all call the young impressionable for a very good reason. And here is a programming and indoctrination on steroids. And I just direct your attention that there may be a competing word here after the executive Richard Karras states that uh, his group is involved in the metaverse infrastructure project called Omniverse. So who knows, we might go from metaverse to Omniverse. Now, I need to say here that I'm not accusing any of the corporate figures that I've mentioned or quoted here from the Wall Street Journal as being engaged in a criminal conspiracy or anything like that. I'm simply saying that this bears watching in terms of our vigilance. And I think that um, I would like to see children be given and adults be given a break from the Internet uh, and that we all voluntarily push away from it much longer than we tell ourselves we're doing. Uh, I think that one of the great antidotes to all the processing that we've been talking about here on the show today would be to live some type of version of the Amish. It doesn't mean you have to have their religious structure or their social structure, but in terms of escaping uh, from this uh, data hive for periods of time where we get our humanity to return to us because this initiatory process and this alchemical dissolution, uh, it's not inevitable, it's not permanent. Uh, everybody has the potential to decompress from it and to be free of it, but it takes the willpower in terms of a very addictive process, which many of us don't recognize, or we celebrate as the biggest revolution in computing platforms from tech visionaries in a brave new metaverse. Notice that the author or the copy editor who wrote the headline uses Aldous Huxley's um, prophetic warning against what we're going into 
to introduce this to it, calls it the brave new metaverse. Again, the initiatory process causes us to, to say, oh, isn't this great? We're going to be processed the way Huxley said we were in a brave new world called metaverse. Well, Huxley never intended that that was going to be a gateway to processing. He thought it was going to be a gateway to our uh, uh, deconstruction of these things. And so, yeah, it's uh, it, it should be much more on the radar screen of people who are so-called influencers. And, and each one of us can be aware of the degree to which we are initiated as part of this society of the spectacle. And if Guy Debord were still here to see this, I'm sure he would be flabbergasted by the extent to which the spectacular has enlarged itself. And this is but one example. Yes, my limited understanding of the metaverse is that they are planning and are also in the process of constructing a parallel universe or a parallel world that we're going to be hooked into and ultimately live in this, uh, well, it's like you pointed out, beyond virtual reality, this metaverse. But the cryptocracy won't, the heads of the cryptocracy won't be living there while the streets are deserted and the forests are uh, uninhabited largely. Um, because what will happen is people will get a guaranteed basic income. They'll be able to have free housing, which will consist of a cubicle uh, with all the metaverse uh, instruments and everything. There's even going to be, I'm told here, according to the article, uh, there's going to be some type of um, wheel that they get on, heptatic, haptic gear that lets users feel virtual objects as well as hardware like omnidirectional treadmills that can simulate running, climbing, and other physical activities. That gear will be in every one of these cubicles. There'll be some pre-processed food that's delivered or uh, somehow brought to them, and then they will be voluntarily confining themselves to these cubicles because that world that you're talking about will be so much more tantalizing and seductive than the actual world that, that is out there, reality. And that allows the cryptocracy and the, um, the leaders of this, the puppeteers of our lives to then go ahead with what is the supreme joy, which is enjoying real life only without the crowds and uh, all the things connected with uh, overcrowding and our fellow humans. Uh, there'll, there'll be plenty of them out there. There'll probably be hundreds of thousands of them enjoying America or Western Europe, Africa, Mexico, whatever, while the others will be sequestered voluntarily. That's the whole point. You know, always remember in your Dracula movies, uh, Dracula doesn't pull anybody through the door of his castles. He says, welcome, come in by your own consent. And it's our consent to these things, which is so extraordinary and unprecedented in terms of looking at the occult imperium over the ages. Because, uh, for example, in medieval times, people had to be compelled. They had to be um, uh, driven into a coerced uh, format of subjugation. Otherwise, they would resist it. The peasants uh, of medieval days, much traduced in our time as pitchfork and torch-carrying uh, bigots, but that's really a slight on uh, fundamentally earth-oriented people who had their vision very clear and they could see who was uh, oppressing them very clearly. 
And even though they were quite often defeated by superior numbers, don't let them find out that you have been running a corrupt cartel because the revolution would, would come very fast and possibly very lethal. And now uh, we have a people who have been alchemically reduced to the point where they avidly consent to this. And it's, it's quite tragic, actually. Thank you so much, Michael Hoffman. Thank you for this opportunity, uh, Bonnie, and thanks to everyone at Pacifica Radio for this free speech bonanza. Speaking with Michael Hoffman, today's show has been The Twilight Language Zone. Michael Hoffman is an independent scholar, a New York native, and former reporter for the New York Bureau of the Associated Press. He studied under Fayez Abu-Jabir at the State University of New York at Oswego. He is the author of ten books, including Twilight Language, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, and Usury in Christendom, The Mortal Sin That Was and Now Is Not. Michael Hoffman's books are available through his website at revisionisthistory.org. That's revisionisthistory.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself for peace. Give thanks. Life and release, you dig?